This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. In this episode, we are focused on the issues and challenges facing women who are incarcerated. ACLUPA is a participant in the Incarcerated Women's Working Group, a coalition of 40 public interest organizations in Philadelphia engaged in public education about the experiences of women caught up in the criminal legal system. The group also engages in direct advocacy with public officials, including prison administrators and elected officials. We'll hear from three members of that group, Ivy Johnson, Adrian Perry, and Jill McCorkle. Ms. Johnson and Ms. Perry have both been incarcerated and speak about the realities of mass incarceration from their experience and in their work with others in the system. Dr. McCorkle is a professor of criminology and sociology at Villanova University and is the founding director of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. The first voice you will hear is Ivy Johnson, which will be followed by my conversation with Adrian Perry and Jill McCorkle. I think people think prison is like you see on TV. I think people think you get privileges and you have access to things that you really don't, or you have very limited access to those things. Uh, It's worse than you can possibly imagine. And it starts before you get the like upstate, you know, you have when you're detained, then when you're in jail, then when you're in prison, you know. And it should really have a sign saying, it only gets worse from here. With the COVID situation, there can, there's no way that a prison is not a super spreader. And I really feel like, and I am, I don't understand this. Prisons and prison staff should have been the first ones getting the vaccine. I'm in touch with a few people in prison, Rockview, Muncie, Cambridge Springs, Albion. Not one of these people have said they have gotten a shot. And a couple of the jails said they ain't even talked to them about the shot yet. Prison, be clear on this, as third world medical treatment. A lot of times you get to jail, you're already on medication that works for you. They'll charge you $5 to go, put you on a different medication. That medication don't work. They charge you $5 more to put you on the medication that you were already on that, that works. If you make $0.19 cent an hour, is a lot. $5 is a lot. A lot of times you can spend your whole month's pay on just medical fees. Medical department of the prisons is privatized. It's corporation. It's corporate America. It's about dollars and cents, not people and lives. Talk to the people that live there and ask them, how can we do this better? But God knows they're not going to ask the inmates. 
Let's brainstorm here, y'all. What can we do? Because not only are the inmates getting sick, the officers are getting sick too. So let's stop all of us from getting sick. But we have to do it together. You know how they say we're all in this together? That's the only way it's going to work. A lot of people say you should do away with prison. I don't advocate for that. But you shouldn't systematically incarcerate people. People do change. Give people a chance. And, and I have to say this. No one will honor and respect freedom than someone who was faced with the possibility of never having it again. I understand COVID is slowing it down, but the governor pardoned 13 people and only two of them were women. The women serving life, if it wasn't for them, I would not have survived my sentence. Because that's all I had to look up to. That's all I had to look up to. They were the ones that encouraged me. You know, I'm the first one in my family that ever go to college. Graduated on a dean's list, third in my class. Ladies serving life sentences helped me do that. And this is the only way I can help them. Is to be their voice. Well, Jill and Adrian, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk about this critically important issue about women in jails and prisons. You're both members of the Incarcerated Women's Working Group, which ACLUPA is part of as well. Adrian, tell us a little bit about what kind of work that group does. Okay, we pretty much, um, well, hi, I'm Adrian Perry. Uh, we pretty much uh, touch bases with one another um, to make sure that the women that are in the prison, as well as the people that are being released, get the the care that's needed for them, like uh, whether resources to homes, uh, clothing, um, just helping them mentally, like through the Sankofa uh, Healing Studio, we do uh, things of that nature. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, great. And Jill, you're the founder of the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls. What's your group's mis uh, mission? Our primary mission is to end the mass incarceration of women and girls. Over the last decade, we've seen decreases in the number of men who are serving time in prisons and jails. And that's a good thing. That's largely the outcome of criminal justice reform efforts. Unfortunately, women have not benefited from these policies by and large. Women right now are the fastest growing segment of the correctional population across the US. And that's ironic because women are the very demographic who should be benefiting the most from criminal justice reform policies since women commit far fewer crimes and their crimes tend to be less serious and less violent than men's. So what we're doing at the Philly Justice Project is advocating for gender informed uh, criminal legal reform policies and providing direct assistance to incarcerated women who are often overlooked when it comes to issues of commutation or miscarriages of justice as that uh, affects convictions and sentencing. So I wanted to focus on, in particular on the way the Philadelphia prison system has handled the COVID-19 outbreak. And Adrian, you were being held in the Philadelphia prison system at the time that the outbreak started. Uh, in fact, you were friends with the first person in the Philly jails who died from the virus, Yvonne Harris. How did the prison administration handle the start of the pandemic? And what was it like for you experiencing that? 
Well, um, at that time, more concern was paid to the staff by supplying them masks first. Um, as a sentence inmate, we were required, was mandatory for us to work. So uh, we we still had to go out and work regardless of, regardless of what the situation was. Um, and we also had to worry about whether we were going to be written up, put in a hole for not upholding our part of our agreement. Um, for me, it was it was scary because, you know, you can't really say no when you're in there. If they ask you to do something, you pretty much have to do it. Um, but we were not protected, I believe, in the best way possible because when we're going out in the public, we protection, we need protection to help us. My my case was a little different because I worked in the, the training facility. So they gave us well gave me a mask, but that was after two of the cadet cadets were um tested. I had a high temperature. Other than that, we were kind of like left out there, which was not good for us. And um I watched as Miss Yvonne seemed like she got sicker. And it seems like the response has been uneven. It's been ever-changing. There have been some outbreaks over the last year in the system. Uh, Adrian, I know you still are in touch with folks who are inside. You do the advocacy work that you do. Um, what have you heard about how things are going now? Um, well, some of the people that are, I, I usually deal with the people that are, are come out or that are released. Um, they have done more to protect the women, I can say, from what was told to us, um, because I do attend the, the uh, committee meetings we have with them like once a month, so we can get updates on how our women are doing inside the prison system. Um, but they have like other small issues that they are slowly addressing now. The, the women were given um, pretty much mask me from to me for say look like sheets <laughs> but you know they were first it was given one now they're I guess they get get two at a time I don't know if it's disposable um but that's what I've been told so I don't know anything other than that Jill, I wanted to ask you a little bit about mental health and the impact on women's mental health in, in this situation, the Philadelphia jails. They, I know the women and, and the men, too, were, my understanding is they were being held in their housing area um, for more than 23 hours per day. They had just enough time out of their housing unit each day to take a shower or make a phone call, but not both. That's been relaxed slightly with a requirement that people inside get at least two hours per day out of their housing unit. Can you talk a little bit about the impact on someone's mental health in that situation? I've heard you say in past interviews that there's both a COVID crisis and a mental health crisis inside the jails and prisons. Yeah, that's right. The The pandemic didn't, didn't just create a, a health problem. It also created a mental health problem driven largely by lockdown policies that were pursued um, you know, both by county jails as well as the state DOC. And, um, you know, the, the lockdown policies are intended, obviously, to slow or stop the spread of the virus, uh, but they have the uh, negative side effect of uh, 
putting people into isolation. Um, in a lot of facilities, it's, it's identical to solitary confinement. And we have now several decades of research looking at the impact of isolation and severe lockdown policies on mental health. Uh, and we know that no one, irrespective of their mental fitness, can endure those kinds of conditions without experiencing serious and oftentimes very debilitating mental health consequences that can range from anxiety and depression in the short term to over the longer term, cognitive decline and disorientation, self-harm and suicidal ideation. And of course, among those with pre-existing mental health conditions, uh, the situation is that much, is made that much worse. And uh, you know, one thing that it's important to recall uh, with respect to incarcerated women is that as a group, they are at considerably higher risk of suicide and self-harm than incarcerated men, as well as members of the general public. So uh, that's one of the things that has been on our radar uh, in the DOC facilities and in the Philly jails throughout the pandemic. And I should also note that, that traditional stop gaps, like access to mental health counseling, contact with loved ones uh, through phone calls or vi visitation, that has been upended in facilities, including in the Philly uh, prison system throughout all or most of the pandemic. One mother that I just spoke to very recently has not seen her son in over 18 months. And unfortunately in his facility, um, it's the video visitation uh, stopgap is plagued with technological problems. So, you know, one party or the other can't hear one another or can't see one another. And frequently the calls are cutting off before the end of the allotted visitation time. Uh, so all of that has led to an uptick of um, a variety of, of negative uh, mental health outcomes in, in the Philly jail system, as well as across the state DOC. I'm glad you mentioned that about visitation. You know, the lockdown policies obviously are the most extreme example of some practices that have been implemented um, in response to COVID, but there are other practices as well that are that are really important, like visitation. And, and my understanding is there there have been limitations or even shutdowns of some of the programming that uh, the people inside the jail system can participate in. That's right. And so uh, there's been uh, there's been stoppages of uh, religious programming, um, mental health programming, and and even a lot of the women who are in. Uh, the Philly jails have reported that when they do get a crisis mm -hmm. counselor, that's happening in, in a mm -hmm. group, group setting. It might be happening in an open dormitory. Um, so people are obviously concerned about, you know, about articulating their problems when other people are, are easily within earshot of that. Uh, mm. So, yeah, so there's been a, a lack of reports. Uh, and also, I should say that the mental health consequences aren't just to people who are incarcerated. It's also uh, for their children. So children and family members who are, you know, also struggling through the pandemic aren't able to communicate or know the health status of their loved one on the inside and vice versa. That's a good point. And Adrian, you know, based on that, you know, how does that compare to what, what Jill just described? How does that compare to what life was like pre-COVID, like what was what was a typical day like inside the jail? My understanding is people would at least have some freedom of movement and have access to services and activities. Pre-COVID, it was, there were so many programs that came to support the well-being of the women. 
They had programs like I'm Free. They had Sankofa Healing Studio, who did an art program with the women. They had programs like Inside and Out, um, Inside Out, which like uh, different colleges came through to uh, help uh, the women get like certain credits, which was, I think, pretty good. You had uh, Chill Out, which was basically a, a, a program that taught the women to be more moral um, and more God conscious. You had... Um, one of my favorite programs from Ms. Valerie Todd, um, Inviting and Exciting. Um, all these people have been fighting to get get back into help the mental health of the, uh, the women that are in there now. Um, they also had like various jobs. I don't um, that we had. We had uh, what's another one? Oh, I, I completed the certified peer specialist program, which was awesome. Um, they gave you a sense of purpose. Um, and then you had the jazz program, which kind of prepares you for when you get out. So I know personally, um, without having these programs, your your mind typically takes about 45 days to readjust from being in prison to coming out. So, and I know those programs help me uh, start to build myself back up, like confident wise and prepare myself. So um, my heart goes out to the women who don't didn't get to experience what I experienced. Jill, how are other prison systems handling the COVID pandemic? Is there a model out there? Is anyone doing it well? I know there have been outbreaks all over the country. Well, the short answer is no. <laughs> no one is doing yeah. it well. Uh, there's no one system that has a gold standard or even a bronze standard. Um, <laughs> And, you know, in part, our ability to, to evaluate the effectiveness of, because, you know, different states and different counties have pursued to varying uh, effect uh, different kinds of policies. But our ability to actually evaluate their success or failure is dependent on their accurately reporting uh, infection rates and health complications and deaths. Mm -hmm. And there has just been rampant. Uh, inaccuracies in reporting and uh, data inconsistencies that have made it all but impossible to, to hold up a particular jurisdiction and say, all right, they're doing it right. Um, but the other thing is, I think that we have to think more broadly when we're thinking about how to respond to this in uh, correctional facilities. And, uh, and one of the ways to do that is to think about other congregate institutions. So how have uh, colleges and universities, how have military barracks handled it and, and what are some successes uh, that might be implement, implemented in uh, correctional responses that are working in these other kinds of, of congregate uh, spaces. So, you know, obviously universal testing, obviously supplying adequate uh, PPP for everyone, uh, having quarantine policies in, in place that, that you can actually enact and, uh, and uh, that, that it's not a sort of scattershot quarantine where you're introducing uh, people that you haven't tested yet into a into a holding space, but then beyond that, of course, the the you know the broader uh, policy is that we have got to get uh, more people out of prisons and jails. And and you know, research scientists and advocates have been saying this from the very very beginning that we have a, an incredibly bloated uh, correctional system in this country. There is no reason uh, for so many people to have still been sitting in correctional facilities throughout the duration of this pandemic. And so, uh, you know, we need to attack this both on the front end 
by providing uh, diversionary options and ending cash bail, but also attacking it on the back end by figuring out how do we get people out? How do we expand compassionate release policies? How do we revisit some of the um, sentencing policies of the drug war to get people out who have, you know, who are health comp compromised, who are 60, 70, 80 years old, serving sentences that were handed down, you know, back in the 1970s and, and 1980s. And so I think introducing sentencing review units uh, as companions to conviction integrity units is, is one of the ways and also pushing governors to expand uh, release and commutation. It's a great point. Decarceration is ultimately the answer here. And there are so many different ways in which that can be done. Uh, my understanding is at this point, the Philadelphia prison system uh, is actually at 90 plus percent are people who are there pre-trial, um, which is crazy, um, com completely unnecessary. Uh, and then you have people who, as you said, you know, people who are close to their minimums or people who are elderly, um, don't need to be in the state prisons or or in the uh, county jails anymore. Um, this has been 51 weeks now of this, and <laughs> uh, we I feel like we're still having the same conversation we were having in March of 2020. Exactly, and and you know the the state board of pardons just met uh, to consider commutations. Uh, you know this past week, and 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 let let out you know less than 12 people. This is this is inexcusable. Um, you know, we need to be thinking about how do we expand commutation in Pennsylvania. And the other thing that Pennsylvania has done very poorly uh, compared to some other states is is very it's very difficult to get a compassionate release in Pennsylvania. And we need to really rethink that from top to bottom uh, because so many of our correctional population are are elderly people. I also understand there are some uh, concerns about about how things are going at um, two of the women's facilities in the state system. Jill, can you address some of those concerns? So SCI Muncie is one of three facilities in the state that actually does have access to the vaccine. Um, and those three facilities are all federally designated as long-term care facilities because uh, of the high percentage of the population that is elderly and has serious medical conditions that uh, obviously make the coronavirus lethal in those facilities. Uh, so uh, the, the response at Muncie um, to the, to the uh, well, actually it's a DOC policy uh, to acquiring the vaccine is to encourage incarcerated people to get it by offering a very modest financial incentive of, of $25 to a commissary account, which is probably a good thing, um, but it's created a, a problematic situation because of course, incarcerated people are very familiar with the history of uh, medical experimentation on prisoner populations and uh, medical experimentation involving vaccines. And so creating a financial incentive without pairing it with education about why this vaccine is safe has raised some uh, concerns and some critiques among certainly the population that I'm in touch with at SEI Muncie. Uh, the situation at SEI Cambridge, where they don't have access to the vaccine, has been uh, dismal from the beginning. And so, uh, and of course, as you know, Cambridge Springs has had one of the most severe outbreaks of uh, COVID during the pandemic. And a lot of that was driven by policies. There were lockdown policies that uh, women weren't able to clean shared uh, restroom and shower facilities. 
which we know are, so they weren't able to disinfect or clean those facilities, which of course are a breeding ground uh, for transmission. Um, and, and, you know, we've heard multiple reports of um, mm. no effort to, to quarantine positive inmates and haphazard testing. So very serious problems uh, in, in both of the facilities though, for, for different reasons. You know, the, the prison and jail system was a dehumanizing system before COVID, and COVID seems to have compounded that problem. I want to finish by asking both of you a more global, kind of universal question, which is, what do you think is the path to change in how prisons and jails operate in Pennsylvania? Adrian, why don't you go first? Um, I think a path should be... Um, Compassion, understanding. Everyone makes mistakes. Um, but know that one day the shoe can be on your uh go on the other foot. Um knowing that okay, they made this mistake, um, they did their time, give them the opportunity to do better by uh I, I believe the path to change will be giving them a clear record. That's what I think. I think um, them understanding that incarcerating someone is not going to, I, I don't believe it helps at all. Um, I believe that uh, if they have not been um, convicted of a crime, you, I don't believe that you need to put them in a box. There's other options where, okay, if you believe house arrest, if you need to watch the person um, until their time comes to where they have to go to court. Um, I believe that we should exhaust every, every option before locking somebody up. Well said. And Jill, what about you? What does change look like in the carceral system in Pennsylvania? Well, Adrian just uh, said that so eloquently. Um, I'm hesitant to even uh, follow up on that. Um, but I, I think that that's right. I, th I think that we have to think about solutions to social problems that aren't uh, dependent on the criminal legal system and aren't dependent, as Adrian said, on locking a person in a box. Uh, you know, this is about valuing people's fundamental humanity. It's about recognizing that we are all in this boat together. We are not going to lock away uh, the COVID crisis. We are not going to lock away, uh, you know, problems connected to, uh, you know, substance abuse and addiction and, um, and poverty. And so for that reason, we have to start radically rethinking how it is that we respond to one another as human beings and how it is that we respond as a collectivity, as a community to the problems that we all confront. And I don't think the solution, and I, I think it's really clear uh, from 200 plus years of incarceration, I don't think that prisons and jails are in any way the solution to our problems. I think they make things worse. Well, thank you both so much, not only for the time, but more importantly for your work. It's really critical. I know a lot of people out there appreciate it. So thank you both. Thank you so much, Andy. This was fun. That's Adrian Perry and Dr. Jill McCorkle. Thanks to them and to Ivy Johnson for their insights and for their work raising awareness about the realities of incarceration. 
The Incarcerated Women's Working Group shares information about its work through its partner organizations. So follow ACLUPA on the various social media platforms with the handle at ACLUPA to stay updated. You can also follow the Philadelphia Justice Project for Women and Girls on Twitter at Justice Girls. And there are some additional resources in the show notes. That brings episode 56 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.